Welcome to the A Catholic Life Podcast. I am Matthew, the author of A Catholic Life, welcoming you to episode 40 of the A Catholic Life Podcast. In today's episode, on the 25th Sunday after Pentecost, which is using the 6th resumed Sunday after Epiphany readings, I'm happy to address the following topics. First, does Christ die at each Mass? We know the holy sacrifice of the Mass is the same as the sacrifice of Christ on Calvary. But does that mean Christ truly dies again? We'll go over that in more detail. Secondly, I go over the upcoming feast days this week. We have a lot of great feasts we celebrate this week. And lastly, since this week is Thanksgiving week, at least in the United States, I go over the alleged turkey indult. That is, is it true that Pope Pius XII issued an indult so American Catholics can freely, without pain of sin, eat meat on the Friday after Thanksgiving? I have the answer to that and more. But before we go on to these topics, I would like to stop and thank the sponsor for today's episode. This episode is sponsored by PrayLatin.com. PrayLatin.com offers Latin prayer cards to learn and share prayers in the sacred language. Learn your basic prayers in Latin conveniently on the go. Practice your pronunciation with easy-to-follow English phonetic renderings of Latin words. PrayLatin.com offers prayer cards in various formats, including Latin-English rosary pamphlets with the traditional 15 mysteries. Shop for additional Latin resources like missile booklets, server response cards, and more. Please visit PrayLatin.com today and thank them for sponsoring this episode. On to the first topic of today's episode, I recently wrote an article for the Fatima Center entitled, Does Christ Die at Each Mass? I will have a link to that article in the show notes that I would encourage you to go read at in more detail. At the beginning of the article, I go over what is the Mass. After all, St. John Vianney said, if we really understood the Mass, we would die of joy. So I go over a basic summary of the Mass and again summarize the four necessary components of the Mass. I then talk about how the New Testament fulfills the Old in the celebration of the Mass. And after doing so, I then address the question, does Christ therefore die again at each Mass? And this was actually answered by Cardinal Cajun on the sacrifice of the Mass from the year 1531, where he said, quote, The single victim offered once on the cross continues to be present in the manner of an offering in the Eucharist instituted by Christ and daily repeated, end quote. The Mass is the representation of the one and same sacrifice of our Lord Jesus Christ on the cross. This sacrifice, which took place at one particular point in time in human history, is the same sacrifice of the Mass. As such, Christ does not die again at each Mass. Christ reigns now in heaven, where he is seated at the right hand of God the Father, and from where he will come again to judge the living and the dead. Yet this same eternal sacrifice, the same one, is made present in our time and space each time a priest offers the holy sacrifice of the Mass validly. The Council of Trent, in response to the heirs of Protestants who abandoned the holy sacrifice and who abandoned the priesthood, states, quote, The victim is one and the same. The same now offers to the ministry a priest who then offered himself on the cross. Only the manner of offering is different, end quote. The council continues, quote, In this divine sacrifice which is celebrated in the Mass, the same Christ who offered himself once in a bloody manner on the sacrifice of the cross is contained and is offered in an unbloody manner, end quote. 
Christ's death on the cross is not physically repeated at each Mass, but his one sacrifice is made present again in a mystical and a sacramental way. Christ won all graces by his sacrifice on Calvary, all graces from the beginning of the world to the end of the world. Our Lord then distributes graces, which he has already won, to those who are sacramentally participating in his one sacrifice at Holy Mass in accordance to their faith and charity. And thus we can say, as St. Paul did in Romans 6-9, knowing that Christ rise again from the dead, he dieth no more, death shall no longer have dominion over him. End quote. On to the next topic of the episode. As I have been accustomed to do really in all my episodes, I'd like to give an overview of the upcoming feast days this week. And there are actually many feast days this week we're talking about. As such, I can't go over in significant detail any particular Saints Day, but please check out the link in the show notes, scroll down to these particular dates in the calendar, and read some of the biographies and the information I have written on them before in various articles. Now today, November 19th, if it was not a Sunday, would be the liturgical celebration of St. Elizabeth of Hungary. She was born a princess, the daughter of King Andrew of Hungary. She would become the great aunt of St. Elizabeth of Portugal. She married a prince at the age of 13, and St. Elizabeth built a hospital at the foot of the mountain on which her castle stood and tended to the sick herself. Her family and courtiers opposed this, but she insisted she could only follow Christ's teachings not theirs. Once, when she was taking food to the poor and the sick, Prince Louis stopped her and looked under her mantle to see what she was carrying, and miraculously, the food that she was carrying to give to the poor had changed, and it was changed to roses. Upon the death of Louis, St. Elizabeth sold all that she had and worked to support her four children. Her gifts of bread to the poor and a large gift of grain to family famine-stricken Germany led to her patronage of bakers and to related fields. Part of the Matin reading for the Feast of St. Elizabeth relates the extraordinary life she, she lived despite being born into wealth. Now, uh, the next day, because I cannot go too much on to St. Elizabeth, is St. Felix of Velos. Now, there are actually quite a number of saints named Felix in the church's calendar, so he's not to be confused with the other Felixes, many of which are also on the universal calendar of saints. Now, after renouncing life at the royal court in France, this particular Saint Felix lived as a hermit. It was not until he was already very advanced in age that he, along with Saint John of Matha, founded the Trinitarians in the year 1200. He lived as a recluse in France and received approval from Pope Innocent III for the Order of the Most Holy Trinity, commonly called the Trinitarians, whose mission was to ransom captives from the Muslim Moors. He shows us that even those who late in age can still serve our Lord. He founded a convent in Paris while he was in his 70s, and he eventually died in the peace of the Lord on November 4, 1212. It's important to remember, no matter what our age is, especially those of us who have gotten quite old and we feel like our time in life is over, what can we possibly do? God gives us each and every day, each week, each month, every time we have here should be used to further our salvation, to save our brethren as well, and hopefully we can win a higher degree of glory in heaven through it. So it does not matter how old we are. We have at our means and our disposal to do God's will in our life, and St. Felix of Alos is an excellent example of this. Now the next day, 
November 21st is really a great day. It is the Feast of the Presentation of the Blessed Virgin Mary. It is a celebration of Mary, not Jesus' presentation in Jerusalem, which would have been celebrated since the 6th century in some places. At the age of three, shortly after she could walk, the Blessed Virgin Mary ascended the 15 steps up to the temple, the old temple in Jerusalem, there to consecrate herself to God. It's reasonable to assume that Our Lady entered the temple at that young age with the words of Psalm 83 in her heart, which say, How lovely are thy tabernacles, O Lord of hosts! My soul longeth and fainteth for the courts of the Lord. One reads about Mary's presentation in the temple only in apocalyptic literature. The Protoevangelium of James states, for instance, that Mary was offered by Anna and Joachim, her parents, to God in the temple when she was only three years old. This action was to carry on Anna's promise to God that Anna made when she was childless. This particular feast day really emphasizes the holiness conferred on Mary from the beginning of her life on earth through her final assumption into heaven. Unlike the assumption in the Immaculate Conception, though, today is not a holy day of obligation. This is what Dom Geringer writes regarding this particular feast day, in part, quote, The East had been celebrating for seven centuries at least the entrance of the Mother of God into the Temple of Jerusalem, when in 1372, Pope Gregory XI permitted it to be kept for the first time by the Roman court at Avignon. Mary, in return, broke the chains of captivity that had bound the papacy for 70 years, and soon the successor of St. Peter returned to Rome. The Feast of the Visitation, as we saw on July 2nd, was in like manner inserted into the Western calendar to commemorate the reestablishment of unity after the schism which followed the exile, end quote. This new feast day at that time was enriched with indulgences by Pope Paul II, who gradually um, uh, became more general, uh, these indulgences did, and then Pope St. Pius V, wishing to de- diminish the number of octaves of, of offices in the Universal Church, actually included this as one of the suppressed feast days. So um, it was for several years celebrated in Rome after it was instituted, but Pope St. Pius X suppressed it. But Pope Sixtus V, shortly thereafter, restored it to the Roman breviary in the year 1585, and shortly afterwards, Clement VIII raised it, actually, uh, to the rank of double major. Soon, clergy and regulars, that is, religious who take vows, adopted the custom of renewing their holy vows on this day, whereon their queen had opened before them the way that leads by sacrifice to the special love of our Lord. There's a lot we could meditate on regarding Mary's presentation in the temple as a young child, offering her entire life to God. Of course, she was always united with him. She never sinned. But there's further meditations we can make. There's actually some really good uh, excerpts and quotations. So if you do check out the link in the show notes, check out the article on the Feast of Mary's Presentation for more information and spirituality to reflect on and meditate this particular November 21st. November 22nd uh, of this week is the Feast of St. Cecilia. She is the illustrious virgin and martyr who died in Rome, and she is the patroness of church music. Um, I'll let you, if you're interested, again, check out the Matins readings in full, which I posted in those articles, because there's a lot of insights that can be gleaned regarding her miraculous life. Um, but, you know, you can check that out since we don't have time to go into to detail with everything. The next day, traditionally, 
is the feast of Pope St. Clement I on November 23rd. He was the fourth pope of the Catholic Church and he, who reigned from the year 92 to 99 AD. There is evidence that Pope St. Clement I was a disciple of St. Peter. And according to Eusebius, St. Jerome, and Origen, St. Clement I is the man mentioned in uh, Philippians 4.3. So you check that out. It is believed by all of these sources that he is the one mentioned there. According to tradition, under the persecution of Emperor Trajan, Pope St. Clement I was forced to work in a quarry, and while there he brought many people into the faith. Finally, the Pope was sentenced to death, so an anchor was wrapped around his feet and he was thrown into the sea and drowned. But after his death, two of his disciples prayed that they could find his remains. And in an answer to their prayers, the sea retreated three miles, and the two found an angel-built chapel that contained his remains in a chest of stone by an anchor. The sea retreated to reveal the chapel each year, and his remains were kept dry for seven days. Today his remains have been moved and are kept in the Basilica of St. Clement. He's remembered for his Clementine literature, as well as a letter to the church in Corinth, often called One Clement, and a second epistle, although scholars are not sure he actually wrote the second epistle. Um, What I think is particularly interesting, especially as I encourage more people to live out truly Catholic customs, is the unique custom that takes place in some places on this day. And this is quoted from the Latin Mass Society. Quote, Today is the Feast of St. Clement on November 23rd, and traditionally children would go clementing. That is knocking on doors, begging for apples, pears, and nuts in exchange for reciting rhymes. Indeed, it is believed that is the origin of the nursery rhyme, Oranges and Lemons. It goes on, also, as Pope Clement I is the patron saint of metalworkers and blacksmiths, and celebration on O Clem's Night began with a bang, quite literally. Blacksmiths filled a small hole in their anvil with gunpowder. This was then struck with a hammer, creating a shower of sparks and a loud boom. The village blacksmiths would dress up in a wig, mask, and a cloak to represent St. Clement and gather in the streets singing loudly and staggering from tavern to tavern, end quote. How far along gone are those days? How many Catholics today even know who St. Clement I is? How many people know he was a pope? How many people can say he was the fourth pope? Or know that miraculous story of how his remains were recovered, how they were deposited in a chapel built by the angels? How many people know this tradition which took place with children singing rhymes and the blacksmith's connection to St. Clement? Much has been lost from our Catholic tradition. That's why I'm also happy to announce that very soon, really within a couple of weeks, um, I will be publishing a new book that is on the customs, the restoring of Christendom through Catholic customs. I'll have much more information in the coming weeks when it is available, but the draft is, is now being reviewed, and hopefully before Christmas it will be published. So those who have read my series of articles in 1 Peter 5 on liturgical customs can finally now purchase it as a book. Going on to November 24th, that is the Feast of St. John of the Cross. He was born in 1542 in Spain near the town of Avila, and at the age of 21 he entered the Carmelite Order. The young St. John felt drawn to the Carthusian rule, but was asked by St. Teresa of Avila to help in the restoration of the primitive Carmelite rule of life. After John established several monasteries of Discal's Carmelites, that is, those opposed to the reform, had him in prison at Toledo. 
During the nine months of his imprisonment, he wrote many of poems and prose works that have made him one of the foremost authorities on mysticism in the West. It should be noted that one of these charges against him, as he sought to reform the order, was that he desired perpetual abstinence. He actually was starved many times as he tried to bring about the traditional rule. Even though the church at that time had a mitigated rule that was approved, he wanted and encouraged older the rule to be followed, which included never wearing shoes and perpetual absence from meat. For that, he was literally tortured, in prison, beaten. He couldn't say mass. His, his bravery was taken away. And after these nine months, he was actually freed by an apparition of the Blessed Virgin Mary who opened the gate so he could escape. These are some of the things I feel like most people don't realize about his life, how heroically he fought for these penances and how much modern man, even at that time, did not want reform. They did not want to go back. And they, what he wanted was simply to keep this himself and encourage others to do the same. Thankfully, because of his sacrifices and those of St. Teresa of Abel, who was also very hated by the Carmelite order at that time, we now have the Discalced Carmelites and the reform that they helped bring about. St. John asked God for suffering, and he received an abundance of both physical and spiritual torment right up to his death in 1591. There's a book uh, I read before on St. John of the Cross by uh, Father Harris. I'll have a link to it. If you go again to the show notes, you take a look at the uh, article on St. John of the Cross, and there's a link in there to the book review. It is an absolutely fantastic book that if you wanted to understand the life and sacrifices of him, I would highly encourage it. And in that article, there is also a link to a summary of his Dark Night of the Soul, one of his greatest masterpieces that unfortunately so many people don't have time to fully read. So I would encourage you to please check out the summary so you can have at least the wisdom of St. John in the Dark Night of the Soul without having to commit the time that unfortunately most lay people and most priests do not have time for. And finally, the next day, November 25th, is the Feast of St. Catherine of Alexandria. She's the patron saint of philosophers and wheelwrights and one of the 14 holy helpers. She was very popular to be invoked during the Middle Ages. Her legend relates that in the early years of the 4th century, Catherine converted to Christianity a group of philosophers who the emperor had appointed to shake the maiden's old faith. The infuriated ruler, therefore, had Catherine scourged and bound to wheels on which knives were fixed, but the wheels broke and the knife flew off, killing some of the onlookers. She was therefore beheaded, and angels are said to have carried her body up to Mount Sinai in Arabia. It's a really wonderful legend that is recounted in the Roman Martyrology, which is prayed by priests, monks, nuns, and lay people who wish to pray it as well. Again, her feast day is this coming Saturday, St. Catherine of Alexandria, not to be confused with St. Catherine of Siena. Now on to the last topic of this particular episode, something that we really need to talk about as we are approaching Thanksgiving is the so-called turkey adult. And since we are short on time, I would just you know, like to go to the conclusion. You can read the article for more information, but there is absolutely no turkey adult. This does not exist in the form many believe, even though many Catholics attached to the 1962 missile claim a dispensation to allow them to eat meat on the Friday after Thanksgiving. They frequently cite Pope Pius XII as the source of this dispensation. Now, what's the history, though? Now, the dispensation from meat on the day after Thanksgiving was granted in 1957 in the form of faculties given to local ordinaries 
to dispense from abstinence on the Friday after Thanksgiving. This is mentioned in the Canon Law Digest. But these faculties were explicitly only to last for five years, and they had to be renewed. In 1962, they were renewed, but they were not renewed afterwards. Before 1962, the bishops of the United States did not generally dispense from Friday absence on the Friday after Thanksgiving, but after the renewal in 62, more bishops did so. For instance, in 1963, the Bishop of Little Rock, Arkansas, used those privileges, and I have a link to an article from a newspaper stating as such. But such a dispensation from the law of absence was never permanently part of church law by virtue of being the Friday after Thanksgiving. While bishops or priests will today dispense from meat on the Friday after Thanksgiving, Pope Pius XII did not permanently dispense from meat on that day, as many allege, and the research of Romanitas Press, which is linked to in that article, further confirms this. Therefore, should Catholics eat meat on the Friday after Thanksgiving without the dispensation of a bishop or priest? The answer is unequivocally no. Thank you, everybody, for listening to today's episode. Please share this podcast with more people. I really need more subscribers. So if you're listening to this in your browser or you downloaded it, make sure you subscribe on uh, Spotify, on Apple, on Google Podcasts, any and all podcast services to help the rankings. Please share these episodes with others. Send them the links. Check out the link in the show notes as well. There's so much more that can be said as we strive to live out our Catholic faith in this era of serious doctrinal confusion. May God bless us and inspire us and help us to do so by his grace. Thank you again for listening. I wish you all a most blessed week. Ad maiorum Dei Glorium.